It's good to see a lot of you today. All of you. I should have said that, right? I should have started with that instead of messing up my English there. I just wanted to talk to you this morning um, about consequences. And uh, from the earliest memory that you have, from the time you were born, your parents were constantly teaching you about consequences. When you started to crawl, they would tell you, don't stick your finger in that electric socket. Something will happen, consequences. Don't stick the Legos in your nose, consequences. Don't blow on the cat's face, consequences. As they began to get older, you were able to start to evaluate your consequences, right? And um, then you started to learn how to push the limits. How far can I go before I get a consequence? And so every single person here evaluates con consequences differently. And let me just case in point. Your mom and dad evaluated consequences differently. I'm a parent. I'm not a model parent when it comes to the subject of consequences, but my wife and I parented our children very differently when it came to consequences. Deborah would think of the millions of consequences that could cause injury or death to my children. I, on the other hand, would say, what is the greatest amount of fun that we could have without my children dying? And that was my mindset of how um, I evaluated consequences. I have a short clip of a dad who is probably babysitting the kid, not babysitting, that's another wrong word right there. Dads don't babysit when they have the kids, it's they're the father, right? Don't get chewed out by all the moms here afterwards, I need to be careful. But taking care of the, 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 their boy, and I don't know the story behind this, but obviously mom wasn't around. So just take a look at this clip here of a dad, how he evaluated consequences. And concussion. So just dads just don't think when it comes to the consequences of their child's life here, apparently. So... The one thing that I, I love to do, some of you who know me well, I'm, I'm super passionate and love surfing. I love to go surfing. And I happen to live near an ocean um, in Volusia County, um, New Smyrna Beach, Ponce Inlet. Those areas are where I go most of the times when I go surfing. And, and so if I were to tell you this whole room, how many of you, this would be actually interesting, how many of you would go surfing with me? Raise your hand, okay, like two of you. How many of you would not go surfing with me? Okay, okay. so I wanna hear all in one, Nicole, I am upset right now that you would not trust me to go surf. Okay, so the real quick, what's the consequence of going surfing in Volusia County? Say it at one time, ready? Yeah, you all know your hometown well, shark attack, capital of the world. But it's not a big deal. 
okay? I still have, I mean, if I die of a shark, you guys are going to make fun of me at my funeral. But, but this is another thing. This is another thing I want you to think about. Those of you that don't want to go with me, um, you probably made a good decision because just last week, we also have lizards in Florida. So this is just last week at uh, New Smyrna. So take a look at this. This is at New Smyrna. It was just taken last week. It's a lizard sunbathing. Not a big deal. Did you know that? That Florida gators hang out in the ocean as well? So not only is shark attack capital of the world, we also have gators. It's probably a good choice for those of you that don't ever want to go surfing with me. You don't want to push that, that limit, that consequence too well. But this morning, I want to talk to you about stepping into a consequence that has huge implications. It's almost as though I'm saying you're stepping into a consequence to get a consequence. And so the consequence that I want you to step into and think about and wrestle with starts with this question. I want you to wrestle with this question today. And I have prayed for you to really be impacted and have clarity from the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes to this question. What is the greatest consequence you would be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? Think of that. We live in America. I'm assuming everyone here does. We have freedom of religion. And here in your context, what is the greatest consequence you would be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? We typically don't have to answer that question here very often. Don't know if you're aware, there are 340 million Christians that are persecuted every single day for their faith in Jesus. 340 million. That's one Christian in every eight worldwide that are persecuted every single day because they know Jesus, they love Jesus, and they live for Jesus. That's a lot of people. And we don't have to really think about that. But I want you to answer the question, what is the greatest consequence you would be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel. I want you to wrestle with what must be done. I'm going to ask this question at the very end of my sermon. What must be done in my life right now to awaken such a spiritual revival, regardless of the consequence, I would be willing to follow Jesus into the fire? It's a tough question. Something that I want every single person to wrestle with today. We are going to continue wrestling with this question, what is church? And today we're going to talk about what do the people which make up the church look like and do? Because we are the church Church is not a building. We are the church. And we have to recognize as we 
start to understand the answers to the question of what is church, we have to recognize the commitment of the early church that the early church had to Jesus, regardless of the consequence that they received, is the standard. That's the standard that we're looking at. We are trying to say, okay, what does the book of Acts say? This is what we've been doing since January. What does the book of Acts say that can answer what is church and what did the people look like? What did they do? What did they act like? How were they with each other? And it starts to answer the question of what is church. And you can't walk away from Acts and start to see images and pictures of their incredible commitment to Jesus regardless of the consequence they received. There is no place that you will ever find in Scripture. There's not one Bible text anywhere in any part of Scripture that Jesus asks you to be less than 100% all in committed to Him. Not one. And in fact, the apostles who we're about to read about in a minute, they remembered the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 and Jesus told them, whoever wants to be my disciple, it's a choice, right? You have to choose. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, you know the rest of it? You must deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. We talked about that at Easter. And that was the standard that Jesus set. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. 100% in. The disciples remembered that. And here in Acts chapter 5, we start to get a sneak peek of the commitment that they had for Jesus, regardless of the consequence. And they had, in, in chapter 4 last month, we talked about chapter 4. They had already been put in jail. They had already been put on trial, and they had already been warned, don't speak of the name Jesus anymore. Stop teaching in that name. And as the church grew, so did the jealousy. And we see that right now in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priests and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Verse 18. And what does jealousy do? Makes you make stupid decisions. Takes joy right out of you. Rather than celebrating it, they were jealous. It was a group of people that, uh-uh, they're taking away our influence. They're taking away our power. They are tearing down the structure that's been here since Moses. And they started to lose that. And they were jealous. And so they arrested the apostles. And they put them in public jail. So it's interesting that word public jail. The only way that we can, we can say that what we have similar to that, it's like a holding cell like you would have at a police station or Seminole County Jail to await trial. And that's typically you're there for a misdemeanor. Don't ask me how I know that, but that's something that you're there. That's how it's public jail. They're hanging out there until 
they are in front of a trial that they are putting together. And so then something strange happens. They were put in jail. There were guards in that jail. And then verse 19, during the night, I love this, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Why wasn't anybody there to describe how that took place in detail? Because I want to know. I want to know who had the, which angel had the force. You will sleep now. And all of a sudden, the guard was just totally unaware. There's a 24-hour guard. The jail was locked. Angel opens it up and walks them out and gives them this command. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. It's a command. Go stand and tell. This is what I want you to do. Go stand and tell. Jailbreak happened. Go stand and tell. And they were obedient to that. And regardless of the consequences that they may face, they knew that the gates of hell would not prevail. They knew that the gospel cannot be stopped. They knew that God was building his church and nothing was going to stop it. They knew that. And they were obedient to that. And all that God requires of us, all that God required of them, is to be obedient to his call, to accept it, and to go and do it. A lot like Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go make disciples. Here's the angel again saying, go tell. Go stand and tell. And so then the rest of the story is kind of hilarious. Because there's a lot of mass confusion. In verse 21, it says, At daybreak, they entered the temple courts. They were obedient, and they did that. They went to the temple courts, and they stood and told. And began to teach the people. When the high priests and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. A lot of important people here. And they sent to the jail for the apostles. Bring them in. The courtroom is ready. They went to go get them, and they weren't there. And there was mass confusion. What do we do? They're not there. The guard's been here the whole time. What do we do? And no one knew what to do. And finally, some random dude comes in. This is the description of Luke, and I love this. Some, some random dude walks in and says, Hey, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Who let them out? And they were confused. They're also upset. What just happened here? See, when God takes control, certain things can't be explained. We have to understand that. We as Christians like things explained in detail. We like explanations. Sometimes when God is at work, there is no explanation. We just say, mm, it was God. I don't know how that happened. And so then they called him in and they put him together before this important assembly of people and they started ripping into the apostles. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Strict orders. 
Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's a sneak peek of how far the gospel had gone. Filled Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a big city. And you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Oh, I love Peter's response. Peter wasn't messing around. Peter says, hold on a second. We must obey God rather than human beings. What do you think that response was? See, Peter, I want you to listen to me very carefully here. Because somebody is going to misquote me. And this is going to be online somewhere, and they're going to try to pull it from the archives and say, see, Pastor Mark said this. So I want to be very careful. I'm going to read straight what I had so I don't booger it up, because I've already boogered up a couple of things here. So Peter laid the groundwork and guidelines for Christian civil disobedience. Right here in this text. Careful now. What is he saying? Is he saying that we can be anarchist all of a sudden? I'm not saying that. See, Christians are commanded to be obedient to governing authorities. That is clear in Romans chapter 13. In the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13. You can check it out. But sometimes men's laws conflict with God's commands. And they recognize that God's authority was much higher than the earthly authority that was telling them not to do something. And when this occurs, God alone must be obeyed regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the consequences. You must take a stand for what God has commanded us as Christians to do. Regardless of the consequences. And so Peter continues to rip into this group of really important people. And he says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed on the cross. We are witnesses. That word witness is martyr. That's where we get the word martyr from. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, how well do you think the Sadducees received this message? Not well at all. And the next verse kind of tells you where their heart was. Verse 33 says, When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. Shows you how far these really... Religious people wanted to take this thing. And then there was this guy. His name was Gamaliel. And um, here's the thing. We don't know a bunch about Gamaliel. There's only two times in Scripture that we hear about this guy. He was a Pharisee. And we hear about him right here. And then we also hear about him in Acts chapter 22. And there is a place outside of Scripture that we read about Gamaliel's children. And there was a Jewish historian named Josephus that was a historian for the archives of Rome. And he was archiving all of um, the stuff that was happening with um, the Jewish people. 
And those are the only three places that we hear about Gamaliel. But what we do know in Acts chapter 22, that he was a mentor, an instructor, a rabbi, and, um, and he was a personal instructor, rabbi, professor, whatever you want to call it, to a guy named Saul. Now, for those of you who are opening the book of Acts for the first time or you're new to Scripture, this story unfolds with this guy named Saul later on. But this guy Gamaliel was his personal mentor. And he stands up before the crowd. And apparently he was a man of honor. Everyone respected him. And this is what the scripture says. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, he was a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. He had the respect of everyone. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside for a little while. Go take a break. Go outside. And then verse 35, he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. I'm sure Gamaliel was there for the illegal trial of Jesus. It was an illegal trial, by the way. And I'm sure he was there, and he saw the same look in their eyes. And he says, we're not going there again. And he says, send these men out. And then he gave a quick historical report that there were other movements that became very popular just like this one. And their leaders either got killed, died, or left, and then the movement dispersed. They, 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 they just disappeared. And so he's explaining that to this group. Leaders jump up and say, hey, we're going to start a movement. And they started a movement because apparently they're very charismatic leaders and that leader was killed. And then all the followers would disperse. So he's describing that to the people. And then he says this in verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. And I love this. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Such wisdom, such discernment. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And then in verse 40, it says, His speech persuaded them. So they did not commit murder that day because of Gamaliel stepping in and he was very prophetic in the moment and shared incredible divine wisdom. And his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Jesus was flogged. This is not a whipping with a little belt. It wasn't a pow-pow. This was a form of torture. This is no joke. Skin was missing at the end of flogging. That was how that form of torture was created. I don't know if you know the details, but his little leather straps, like a bunch of tiny like dad belts, put all on a stick. And those little belts had like little pieces of either metal or sharp bone 
And that's what they would put in there, and that's what came across your backside. And there was, there was um, historical data of the Romans doing that to people where the strong Romans would go and they would throw that. And it was almost like a, it's time for school. It was almost like a, a Velcro being put across your back and then they would rip it the opposite way and pieces of skin would go away. So this is not just a, let's pass by this and then they were flogged and let go. This was serious. And so they were flogged and they ordered the men to speak, to not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Did they obey that? We'll see that here in a second. So here you think that they would be upset. We've been put in jail twice. We've been put on trial twice. We've been told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they tortured us with this thing called flogging. You would think that they would be a little upset. They were not. Listen to this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Do you imagine? What would you be willing to endure for the sake of Jesus? And no matter what suffering may come your way, would the end result be you rejoicing because of it? So tough questions, right? And so did they listen to this group, the Sanhedrin? Did they obey him? No. Because they went, and it says in verse 42, day after day, meaning daily, day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house. This is a shameless plug for home church. They met in the temple courts together with corporate worship, and they also met house to house in smaller groups. They did both. And they met there daily, and they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Day after day, house to house, never stopped. No matter what was thrown their way, no matter what persecution they endured, they never stopped preaching and teaching the word of God. The message, the community, the movement, the church is invincible because it was set on the cornerstone of Jesus. And see, what Satan does is Satan tries to work inside the church because all he wants to do is to divide it, disgrace it, and destroy it from within. But the church that operates in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that can stop the advancement of the gospel when Jesus is the central focus when Jesus is your strongest desire individually, and when we come together corporately in the purposes of God, and it's in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is an unstoppable force that the gates of hell will not prevail. Guys, you're, you're on an undefeated team. I mean, you're like the 1972 Miami Dolphins. 
That's a shameless plug for them, right, Juan? You're on an undefeated team. That should be something that you're pumped about, that, 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 that is something that you push towards. But it has to start here as an individual. It has to start here with surrender. It has to start here as an individual for all of us. Because if our purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, verse 39, again, you will not be able to stop this movement. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. A year ago, if you can believe that, we were all in quarantine. And I was just really struggling with my purpose, the church's purpose. What do we do in the light of this weird reality? And um, I had a really good friend of mine. His name is David Achada. And we had a lot of conversation back and forth. And he's a church planner. And um, he sends me this link. He says, hey, watch this for inspiration. And um, he always sends me stuff to trick me into um, feeling bad about myself. And he sends me this link. It's this YouTube documentary. And um, it's about the church, the Christian church in Iran. You know, I don't want to tell you um, the name of this documentary. I want to see you face to face. I want you to text me or call me. I want you to find me after this service. I want you to say, tell me what that is. Because if you commit to watching this, um, you are a brave soul. Meaning that you're ready for whatever consequences might come. Because when I watched this piece, and we're going to, I'm going to show you just a small clip. When I watched this, I, I had to repent. I'm going to tell you why later, but you hear this story being told from a missionary that disciples Christians in Iran. And there was a couple, a family, who got the opportunity to leave Iran and come to America. It was an amazing opportunity because of the amount of persecution that happens there. By the way, the, the fastest growing Christian church right now is in Iran. It's unbelievable what the followers of Jesus are doing there under that persecution. But he tells the story of them coming to America. So this is a short clip. I just want you to hear um, what he says, what this couple says. Um, so here's a quick clip. The most impactful thing that he shared with me was a story about his wife, actually, something that his wife said that has really stuck in my head. He talked about how years ago they had an opportunity to move to the United States and live there, so they did. 
And then after being in the United States for a short period of time, his wife began to plead with him to take her back to Iran, which he felt like was crazy. I mean, who, who wants to move back to Iran under all sorts of oppression where, where the sharing of your faith could bring the end of your life or brutal incarceration or rape or all sorts of horrible things? Who, who, who wants to do that? I mean, who, who wants to move from the United States to Iran? She told him, there's a satanic lullaby here and all the Christians are sleepy and I'm feeling sleepy. And that, that little story uh, disturbed me because this woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was a greater threat than the kind of persecution that happens in Iran. And that threat was spiritual sleepiness. That is a more dangerous situation than persecution. And I had to ask myself the question, is that true? Is that true? Just that line, there's a satanic lullaby here in America. And all the Christians are sleepy. And I got to admit, at times, I have fallen under the spell of this satanic lullaby. There are times that I have been sleepy, complacent, and comfortable. And right now in this moment is a wake-up call to wake up out of this sleepiness. This life is really short. And it's not about this life that we get so worked up over, right? We're talking about eternal values. I would love to see an absolute breakthrough revival that happens in each of your lives individually. That there is an awakening in that sleepiness, that lullaby that has put us to sleep over the years, or maybe even our whole life, where you've just kind of gone with the motion of just showing up to church, going to work, coming home, show up to church once a week. When will life be so incredibly passionate where you are hungry, thirsty, that everything around your life centers around your passion for the Holy One of Jesus? What will it take to awaken that? So here's the question that we started with. What must be done in my life right now, this is a question for you to answer for yourself. What must be done in my life right now to awaken such a spiritual revival that regardless of the consequence, you would follow Jesus into the fire? 
What must be done? What roadblocks are there? Is it shame of your past? Is it a sin from last night or this morning that keeps sucking you in? Is it jealousy? Is it hate or anger? Is it pride? Is it a lack of trust? Is it fear for what others might think? Is it fear of losing friendships? Is it fear of walking away from certain friendships? Do you trust Jesus enough to step into whatever he's called you for, which is to live and to share the story of Jesus with the world? What must be done in my life right now to awaken such a spiritual revival that regardless of the consequence, you would follow Jesus into the fire. I don't know where you're at right now, but what I do know is the gospel is invincible. The church is undefeated. And during this moment, during this last song, if the Holy Spirit puts Whatever it is that's that roadblock, whatever it is that's stopping you for 100% commitment all into Jesus, because I know how that Holy Spirit works. It's there. You might want to ignore it. You can't stifle what the Holy Spirit's sharing with you. He is surfacing in your heart right now your secret sin that's holding you back the relationships that are holding you back, perhaps maybe a career that's holding you back to being all in to Jesus. So whatever that is that's surfacing, I want you to come forward and be prayed for. And for those of you, um, we have a bunch of elders that we're up here. For those of you elders or whoever, if you're spiritual connectors, Follow those individuals up. Lay your hands on them and pray over them. And if you want to share whatever that is to the person's praying for you, let them call that out by name in the name of Jesus. Father God, now in this moment, during our final time of singing worship, and praise and glory to you. There are people that are sitting here in these chairs that are wrestling, struggling, fighting. And Lord, if you have arisen something in someone's heart that's been holding them back for years, decades, I pray that they will be emboldened to stand up and want breakthrough and want prayer. 
I pray for spiritual revival over each person that regardless of the consequence, we are willing, Lord, to step into a commitment to you just as the early church did. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.